Welcome to Creators by Moonlight. Real conversations with content creators. Rohini Devesher is an artist from Delhi, India. Her artwork manifests itself in many forms and is often inspired by science and nature. In this interview, she talks about the struggle to get started in the field, many of the interesting projects she's undertaken, and what she sees next for the art world. My name is uh, Rohini Devesha, and I am an artist uh, based in India. I grew up in Delhi, and I live now in a suburb uh, in the neighboring state of Uttar Pradesh. So I live in Noida, which is sort of part of the national capital region. So I grew up uh, in in Delhi, which is a one of the, is the capital of India. It's the large, chaotic, crazy city. Delhi is very big. Uh, so Delhi also has a lot of really interesting history. It's a very layered city. So Delhi has many Delhis, I would say. Delhi has Old Delhi, which is the older part of the city, which is where you will find a lot of the older markets. But it has, you know, the most beautiful monuments, which are a legacy of the Mughals. Then, of course, we have a very large colonial history. I mean, you know, the British, um, uh, it was the capital of the, the city. So there's a lo- large part of um, Central and South Delhi, which is uh, which was all planned uh, during the British uh, reign. So, architecturally as well, Delhi is very very complex. And historically, of course, Delhi is very rich. It is very layered. It's a complicated. It's uh, difficult. It's extreme. Uh, you know, ranges of heat. Just in terms of, we have almost nine months of pretty brutal summers, and then we have three months of this year. Like for instance, has been really cold. So Delhi is a city of extremes as well. And in terms of the people, I think people come from all over the place, you know. So it's I, what I like about Delhi is that it's got quite a, re, uh, a wide demographic. People come from everywhere, whereas I feel like maybe some other cities, uh, there's much more of a local, you know, sort of population. But Delhi has a lot of people who come from everywhere. It's a complicated place because, of course, as I said, it's the capital. So politically as well, this is where a lot of battles are fought uh, and it can be quite a fraught, fraught city as well. Childhood was really pretty um you know normal wonderful i think um we lived with my grandparents because my father passed away when i was very young so my mom was a graphic designer and i think uh it's thanks to that that a lot of my early childhood i think is was very creative from the get go it was filled with the usual things you would imagine i have a younger sister we used to do the you know ride around on bikes every day we used to the usual things that kids do I did a lot of drawing, I did a lot of art, I would go and sit and paint the monuments, that kind of thing. And then, uh, yeah, mom would take us to all kinds of, you know, children's film festivals. We always visited libraries and borrowed books and films and things like that. So we had a lot of culture growing up as well. My mom is just an amazing woman and she just, she never told us to do anything except what we wanted to do. So there was absolutely no pressure. It was more sort of trying to figure out what it was. I went to a a school in New Delhi, which um, had art as a subject in the higher grades, which is, I think, rare at the time, which was a while ago now. It's been almost 25 years since I graduated from school. So I was able to take art as a subject in the 11th and 12th grade, which I think is like 
A levels or O levels. And that I think made a big difference because then when I graduated from school, I only applied to colleges that were offering a creative, you know, sort of degree. So I applied to art college, I applied to design college. I actually got accepted to the same college my mom went to. With a supportive upbringing and a basic background in the arts, Rohini decided to pursue them as a career. But she eventually realized that formal training does not translate to instant success. I went to a college in Delhi, which is called the Delhi College of Art. And it's a very, it's a comparatively conservative school in the sense that, you know, it's much more focused on technique. It's very uh, geared towards skill. And I met an amazing group of, you know, artists, uh, friends who I know today who continue to be a really, you know, important part of my life. And it was just the most blissful four years. I loved it. I did really well. The coming down to earth after that was a bit brutal, I have to say, because it didn't prepare you for anything. <laughs> so all you have is all this skill, but there was nothing to put it to words. You know what I mean? There was no focus on on research. It was always about the end product. It wasn't so much about what went before. So then for three years, I just took a break. I, I, I worked in a gallery. I worked in, you know, a bunch of, I did research projects. I wrote for other researchers. I worked for, I wrote for art historians, stuff like that, just to try and figure out what what was happening, you know, what's going on. And I started working just on small projects at a print studio, uh, an etching studio in New Delhi, which unfortunately has since closed down a while ago. So I continued to do that. And it, it felt to me like, you know, um, it made sense if I was to do an MA, which I knew I wanted to do, to do it towards something that was more technical. So I applied for an MA in printmaking uh, to the UK. And I went to the Winchester School of Art. And that was, I feel like that was probably, um, there were two phases where I feel like the work or my practice has shifted dramatically. One was definitely the MA because there, of course, everything was a large part of your degree uh, credit was research. You know, what you're doing, why you're doing what you're doing and that kind of thing. So that one year was really, really amazing. Winchester is a really small little city and it's a perfect little, you know, it's a very sort of picture postcard kind of thing. And because it was such a small tight-knit group of people, it became family. I mean, I think, you know, that initial uh, anxiety of leaving home, which happens, of course, homesickness, was about a week, maybe, you know, something like that, maybe a little less. But after that, it was just, um, it was fantastic. I loved every minute of it. I was very sad when I had to leave. I extended, I mean, after the MA finished, which was about just, just longer than a year, I spent three months in Scotland on a residency at a print studio, which was another amazing adventure. And then I came back in 2005 but yeah it was it was fantastic it was a great experience also because you know as i said it made you think about why you do what you do it made you i mean in terms of my own practice it made me really look deep and i started to explore the ideas of pattern which i had been already doing but not really going deeper than that so a lot of the work that i do now is still drawing on the base of the ma in printmaking because i started to work a lot with um stacking and iteration so essentially if you think about a print if you think about printmaking whether it's uh, on a stone on a screen or on a uh, plate like an etching a steel plate or a copper plate the idea is that you can make multiples of the same image right so you have a, an image on a plate and then you should be you will be able to make multiples but i always found that that sort of you know perfection very uh, stressful honestly so i was much more interested in what would happen if you kept using that plate as a kind of 
block and you kept building surfaces with that. So this sort of interest in complexities and in the emergence of chaos or rather the emergence of pattern out of chaos began with the MA, began with working with many kinds of surfaces and materials, which was paper, cloth, screen printing. I didn't do much etching. I did a lot of screen printing and I first started to work with uh, digital prints in the UK. Uh, I came back and I think within a couple of months of that, I started working at an art space in Delhi, which is the second sort of pivotal moment. It is, it's called Koj, Koj International Artist Association. It's now just called Koj Studios. Koj means to search. It's a Hindi, it, it's a word that means to search, you know, to look for. And it started out as an artist-led initiative. And it's essentially at the time, which was like, what, 2005. So it's been a while. At the time, it was a small studio space in the heart of Delhi. And it was run by artists, for artists, where they would do really interesting experimental art. Uh, it was all on, you know, cutting edge. We're talking at that time, performance, public art, community-based uh, art projects, um, art and science, that kind of stuff. So I worked as part of the staff for about six years, you know, and I did everything from education and outreach. I worked on publications, programming, fundraising. And then gradually I started to do my own work as well. Because, you know, when you're around so many artists, because Koj would invite artists from all over the world with a focus on the global South. So that would be Africa, South Asia, etc. Which meant that, you know, you're meeting artists who are working with material you haven't even thought of before as being material. So it was really, that was the education, you know, that was incredible. It was really an exciting space to be at the time because it was also, I think, just before the boom, you know, the art boom in, in India. So there were very, there were comparatively few galleries. I would say there were maybe four or five in Delhi. So Koj was really, it still is a very exciting space. But at that time, it was, you know, it, it fulfilled a different sort of function in the infrastructure. Because one of the other things that is very different in India versus, let's say, the UK or Europe or the US is that there is very little or very poor public infrastructure for the arts. So we have a National Gallery of Modern Art, but it's it's terrible. It's in terrible shape. Uh, and the same goes for most of our public funded institutions, there is no public funding for the arts. So everything that happens ends up being in a commercial space like a gallery or, um, you know, like a privately funded. Now there are far more privately funded uh, collectors who have set up institutions. But then, you know, those are always complicated spaces in their own right. So Koj has always been really important because it is a not-for-profit space. It raises funding from um, various, uh, you know, donors, and it always supports really experimental work. So anyway, I worked there for six years and then gradually from being a full-time staff member, I cut it down. My boss was amazing. Pooja Sood is the most amazing powerhouse of a woman. I slowly cut it down to like three days a week and then two days a week. And then I was working mostly part-time because it became you know, quite hard to do my own work and work full-time at, at Koj. Yeah, and I worked there till 2011, and then my daughter was born, and then it was like, okay, so now I absolutely have to choose. So it has to be my practice, which isn't going anywhere. Obviously, my daughter's not going anywhere. So then, you know, it just was a very organic time, right? It was the right time to just say bye-bye to Koj, and um, I did. So I think in 2011, I actually cut, I mean, I was on my own as a solo practitioner. I had a salary from from the organization, you know, which makes a big difference. So the advantage also is that I think I, I met my gallerist in 2007 or six, I think. Also, while I was I was working at Koj in the studios, you know, on my doing whatever I was doing. And this young gallerist had walked in and she met Pooja, who was the director of Koj. And I just liked she had just set up her gallery in Bombay. And I just liked her energy. 
so i made a cd of my work and i just handed it to her before she left and then she emailed me back and said okay you know we're doing a summer show and can you send us something so that's how that happened and she's still my gallerist today and she's amazing her name is shri uh, banaji goswami and she runs a really fabulous space in mumbai which is called project 88 so i had i mean i had had that conversation with her so i did have a gallery and i'd had a solo in 2009 but yeah it was nerve-wracking because it meant that now you're sort of to an extent uh, at the mercy of the to the market but i was also married by then which also means that i had some you know financial stability and that's a big that's a huge thing in the art world because a lot of it is very it's very it's a very insecure space financially rohini's focus on science and the natural world has taken her to interesting places and yielded some interesting experiences while pursuing her art I think I'm interested in the ways in which nature as a construct keeps shifting and our relationship to it and then by extension our relationship to the planet the way that we frame the planet and then the way that in turn frames our own you know sort of experience of it and I'm interested in you know how how do you look at these questions so I'm interested in applying speculative perspectives fictional perspectives scientific frames you know so there are different ways in which I approach different kinds of bodies of work Um so for instance at the moment I'm working on um two two bodies of work one of in, which in fact I I was on on a ship I was on an oil tanker for 26 days but there are these two curators based in New York and then they uh, had seen my work at the Freeze Art Fair and they run the the residency that this was part of it's called the Owner's Cabin so they invited me and they said you know this is something you want to do and I was like yes please That was an experience. Oh my god. I mean, I feel like that was life-changing in many, many ways because you get to see the planet in a way that I think is just no I know I I've never seen no light pollution, you know, in the ocean at we we crossed the Pacific from Fiji to uh Samoa to Singapore. I really felt a sense of loss when I disembarked in Singapore because it was a, such a strange, you know, time also. You know, you don't have any internet, you don't have any real contact with anybody else and it ends up being just everybody on board and then you know it was just you you set up your little routines and you have your little time for when you're going to go and have chai or tea on the bridge with the officers or whatever it is so it was really it was really special i mean quite apart of course from just the physical experience of seeing the planet that way i i realized or i didn't realize that there's no light pollution at all so there was no light pollution the ships run in complete darkness so it was actually the best space for photography so i captured the most for me i was thrilled the most amazing pictures of the milky way because we were in the south pacific and we were there in june in may and june which is milky way season so we had the milky way arching overhead every night it was just spectacular and then during the day you know the color of the water shifting from turquoise when we were in the torres straits to got almost midnight black blue and we were at the depths you know 14000 feet in the pacific it was a bit freaky in the beginning like it took me about a while to be able to sleep properly i have to say it's a little unnerving in the beginning but you get used to it yeah i'm interested in these kinds of fields you know the field as an idea the field as a source of collecting material the sky is the field the ocean is the field there are lots of different sorts of ways in which i look at the world that we inhabit and the natural world and our relationship to it that and i am an amateur astronomer 
and the strange thing is that for about 10 years it's all, it was just a hobby you know it was just something that i would do on a sunday we would just meet at the planetarium or we would do observations and star parties and things but about 12 years ago it suddenly has come full circle and now it's a massive it's a big big part of of my work it's a big part of the work that i do and all of that was also because of a stellar event it was a total solar eclipse which happened um on the 22nd of july 2009 and it was supposed to be a really spectacular event because it was one of the deepest totalities that means it was almost 6 minutes of totality and that's the longest of this century so if you think about it most total solar eclipses um the duration of totality which is when the moon completely covers the disk of the sun is usually anywhere between 30 seconds to 2 or 3 minutes you know that's about the range but this was supposed to be 6 minutes so i had flown down with a, you know everybody had gone to patna which is in the state of bihar to see this eclipse and we were on the rooftop and it's this um early morning eclipse so we're all stay we stayed up all night and then by about 5 o'clock we realized that the clouds are coming in and sure enough when totality hits it's completely occluded and it starts to rain the energy on that roof that experience was really um, something else because there was pitch black it was pouring it was cold people were screaming because of course there's only hysteria or you know there's joy and tears there's nothing in between there's no middle ground in a total solar eclipse but i was like there was that moment when you're suddenly aware of your physical position on the planet you know what i mean like you are on a sphere in space in between these two bodies that are but and you're watching i mean sorry you're the third body and you're observing the sun and the moon in action shortly thereafter i came back to delhi and uh, there was another art space well it's a research space in delhi which is called uh, csds which is the center for developing societies and they had put a call out looking for artists or anyone actually artists scientists dancers anyone to look at the city of delhi as a studio so i just wrote a one page proposal saying i wanted to try and understand why amateur astronomers do what they do as a way of understanding why i do what i do as well you know why am i drawn to, drawn to the night sky and that project is still ongoing now you know and uh, it's been amazing because it's strange how things that you don't really necessarily think of as being part of work come into work you know it becomes something that, i think if you love something there's there's a way in which you can fold it into your work as well so that's sort of what's happened with that whole body of work which is now almost 12 years old A few of Rohini's most prominent projects are Atmospheres, a new perspective inspired by a classic NASA photograph, and Glasshouse Deep, an exploration of some of the smallest creatures in the ocean. One is called Atmospheres and it's a single channel video with sound it's about 6 and a half minutes. and this was the result of um a visit to an observatory with another amateur astronomer Ajay Talwar and I had traveled with Ajay I've traveled with him a lot and he's an amazing amazing astrophotographer he's an amazing uh, educator he's just a fabulous fabulous human being so we went we went to an observatory which is in the south of India and it's called the Gauri Bidnoor radio telescope array and it's a really amazing amazing observatory it's basically got a bunch of radio telescopes but there are two different kinds of radio telescopes so one of them are just these dipoles so that they like um they basically long wooden poles which are dug into the ground and then the telescopes are just these very thin black wires that are strung along them uh, and then they also have newer radio heliographs which are these incredibly strange beautiful metallic telescopes which study the corona of the sun 
So I went to this site with Ajay and I got there and I was, um, you know, it's one of those things where what I love about travel and about these sort of expeditions, if you like, is that you have to go with no expectations in mind. So I go to this site and I was completely the only image online. I had a very different image in my head of what the observatory would look like because it was obviously an image that had been taken from the air when the when the array had just been laid out. But when I went there, it had been overgrown because, of course, it's a it's in a lush part of South India, so you can't really get a sense of the scale of these you know these poles extending into space. So the result is a bit like you're walking into a tenting sort of like you know where a circus has come down, but they haven't removed the poles. You know what I mean? It was a bit like okay. But then, you know, you so we spent three days there and Ajay had this um, fisheye lens with him. So he wasn't using it at one point and I asked if I could borrow it. And I just was shooting the sky at different points with the camera pointed up at the zenith with my, you know, at different points in the array. And then when I came back home and I looked at this material, it was one of those amazing moments of wow, because I realized what happens is with the fisheye lens, of course, it turns everything, it gives you a 360 degree panorama, right? If you're pointing up at the sky. So it makes the sky into a, a disc, it makes the sky into this amazing sphere. And it was like the image that it brought to my mind immediately was, um, what is it called? You know, the, the image of the Earth first taken from space in 1972 by the, by the crew of Apollo. The blue marble, that one image which, you know, at the end of the Cold War sort of transformed people's imaginations and made them rally around this image, you know, instead of the mushroom cloud. And the idea of one planet is still at the forefront of the Anthropocene argument or climate change, of course, you know, because it is one planet. So I, I was. what happened finally in the work is that it was like a way of looking at our planet again, but from our perspective on the ground. So what you see is the sky but slowly, you know, sort of bisected and trisected by these very thin radio telescopes. And sometimes with these incredibly strange and beautiful radio heliographs on the side. Yeah, I think that it's one of those pieces that I'm very, that I feel really worked well and has become more and more significant for me as well as in the way other people read it is because there's this sort of sense that maybe one of the best ways is to actually look from where we are, you know, um, because that perspective is also... It's really interesting because NASA uh, published another image of the blue marble in 2012. So the image of the first blue marble was shot in 1972 by the crew of Apollo 17. It was taken from a distance of approximately 29,000 kilometers from the Earth's surface. The resulting color-corrected photograph was adjusted and it was now it's now one of the most accessed image, images online, right? Uh, and in 2012, NASA created a new version of the blue marble which was photographed by a satellite which orbited the Earth at approximately 930 kilometers above the Earth. Now, obviously, from this distance, it isn't possible to view the planet as a whole, right? You have to go 11,000 kilometers further away before you can see the whole sphere. So this new photograph, which was launched in 2012, was actually a composite, which was assembled from a series of digital images, which is actually a really, really interesting metaphor, I think. You know, so there's a really cool book, How to See the World, by a gentleman called Nicholas Murzov. And he talks about how the blue marble is made to seem, you know, as if it's taken from one place in space, but it's not. It's accurate in each detail, but it is false in that it gives the illusion of having been taken from a specific place at one moment in time. So this tile rendering is a standard means of constructing digital imagery, but it is a good metaphor for how the world is visualized today. We assemble a world from pieces 
assuming that what we see is both coherent and equivalent to reality until we discover it is not. That's the end of the quote. So I think what my work Atmospheres does is that it offers the perspective that the other way to look at a whole is from much closer, you know, which is uh, from the earth. So that's that piece. And then the other work which I wanted to tell you about is called Glasshouse Deep, which I just made, I was going to say this year, but of course it's now last year. Glasshouse Deep was commissioned by the Busan Sea Art Festival, the Busan Biennial for the Busan Sea Art Festival, which happened last year. Uh, so the other part of my research looks a lot at you know processes of emergence. I'm really interested in pattern, self-organization of pattern. And a lot of the work that I do involves video feedback, which is, of course, a super cool thing, which has been around forever. And video feedback, for those who may not know, is just it's sort of like the optical equivalent of audio feedback. You know, so when you take a mic and you put it near a speaker, you get that really annoying noise. So it's the same thing with, a, with video feedback, except that you plug a camera into a TV and you make the camera look at itself. And if you adjust the settings of the camera and the TV and the ambient light, then you can create the most amazing forms that are generated within the loop, within the machines, you know, between the camera and the TV. And it's really incredible stuff. And anyone, you know, there are DIY tutorials online. The behavior that is generated starts to mimic biological life. You know, you can create cell patterns, tree forms, uh, you know, those kind of um, snowflakes. It's basically like you can generate fractals. So what I do with a lot of the other work is that I shoot footage like this, uh, I chop it up, and then I stitch it back together into different kinds of assemblages. And the work that I did for Busan, which is called Glasshouse Deep, was building on that, but also looking at diatoms, which were collected by, you know, the um, Korea Institute of uh, Ocean Science and Technology. And diatoms, are basically very small micro, um, sorry, uh, phytoplankton. They're really small and they have the most exquisite skeletal structures. You know, they're made out of glass, they're made out of silica, and they have the most incredible patterns. And they're also called the jewels of the deep. They're also called opals of the deep because they have this amazing chrom chromatic brilliance. So the piece is um, about 10 minutes and it's basically sort of a speculative journey into this kind of strange deep, you know, where you're looking at diatoms but you're also looking at trajectories in space. You're looking at points in space. And then light plays a very important role because um, on one hand, spectral quality of light induces migration in diatoms. And video feedback also occurs when light is looped between a video camera and a television. So light is a sort of central protagonist. Rohini describes her current work, her overall professional philosophy, and future trends in the art world. So I think when I was younger, even I would say 10 years ago, it was looking for inspiration or it would be triggered by uh, an invitation to an ex exhibition, for instance, something like that. I think the difference is that now I actively create opportunities to go and look for things. So I do some home amount of homework. Some things happen just serendipitously. So the owner's cabin oil tanker residency just happened. And the result of that is a huge, like two terabytes of material that I haven't even looked at yet. So some of those things just happen as a result of invitations. But for instance, the piece I'm working on at the moment, uh, it's a project that's called 100,000 Suns. And this was, uh, it's focused on an, a very, it's a, an incredible observatory in the south of India, Kodai Canal Solar Observatory. It's almost 150 years old, and it has one of the oldest archives of the sun. 
So almost for 115 years since 1904, every day, weather permitting, the staff at the observatory have taken photographs of the sun. And this archive takes the form of drawings, takes the form of glass plates, you know, photographic plates. It takes the form of C-calcium images, H-alpha images. So I knew I wanted to go there. So when there was a call for a resident, um, for an application for projects about three years ago, I applied with this project. I got that. So it just meant that I made a little expedition around an eclipse. I spent three days at the observatory and I collected material. So that's what I'm working on now. So it's a bit of both. Busan was an invitation by the curator who had seen my work with video feedback and said, you know, is this something you want to work with again? And I told her, yes. So she then said, okay, well, how about we connect you with this, you know, amazing um, scientific institution in Korea? So I think it's both. I think now I'm at the point where I actively do seek also. And then because it's, I think the way that I work, I realized is I, I take a while and very often I have two or three projects going at the same time, but each of those can take two or three years to gestate, you know? So I like to collect, sometimes the collecting and it just stays, it just means that it's time hasn't come yet. I think I would only say that maybe one of the things I am very interested in with all the work is that I think all of the work, whether it's with video feedback, whether it's drawings, whether it's the work that looks more at the relationship between astronomy and whatever, is looking at making a case for wonder. You know, I feel like the world has lost currency a little bit. And I feel like it's very important because wonder and the line it walks with the strange is really, really interesting, you know, because wonder makes you look at the world anew. Wonder makes you ask the question, you know, it's as if you're looking at the world anew, no? So I think those are very, those are two things I'm really interested in, making things strange and making a case for wonder. I think we're seeing lots of new trends, whether or not they will stay or whether or not there's anything like, I don't understand NFTs at all, at all. Like, I just don't, I don't get it because as I've, I've been talking to other artists as well who work in the digital and then as this other artist um, was explaining, to, I mean, I was, he was just saying this whole idea of creating artificial scarcity, right? The whole idea is a meme is meant to go viral. And then you take an NFT and somehow, I don't know, it seems to be completely counterintuitive and working against itself. And at the end of the day, again, I don't get it because I can own an NFT, but uh, somebody else can right-click, download, and own it as well. So I, I, I think I'm just a bit uh, leery. I'm a bit suspicious. Um, there is a very interesting link between pandemics and speculative bubbles. So the bubonic plague produced the tulip mania and COVID. And I'm just saying <laughs> there's some interesting similarities happening here but i don't know i think it's one of those things where either i just i just don't get it i think i've read i've done a bunch of reading around it i just don't um i don't see it i don't see it at all uh so maybe it's just a question of waiting maybe it's too far ahead of me i don't know i think this is the thing because a, a lot of the articles i've been reading just in the past week is one of those uh i forget the name of which portal shut down because they're just finding so much fraud right so there's so much fake art so uh, what is stress stress inducing for someone? I mean, you know, uh, as an artist who tries to keep a fair control on quality, you know, like you want to make sure that the work is seen the right way, that kind of thing. The idea that you, if you enter this and then suddenly you find your stuff all over the place, because a, a gallerist who deals with digital art said it's so difficult to litigate. Who do you litigate against? You know, like where, how do you even begin? So I think it's, I think maybe, maybe it's time. Uh, either way, I think we'll know what. What's going on there? So the future, I think, is, um, I think with all things, I think it's just, uh, 
we'll find out i think the pandemic has shifted things i think only because um i mean i don't know if it's shifted what art is being produced but i think it has shifted maybe hopefully the way that we engage with the art world maybe you know i just feel like now one is being or maybe that's just me maybe this is cave syndrome like i just feel like one is being much more careful in terms of how you spend your energy you know like there was so much of the pounding of the pavement pavement to go and see um, shows and that kind of thing i think that's really fallen through i think it just depends no the way audiences are whether audiences are still reengaging with art or artists are also just reengaging with galleries and you know that kind of the museums for instance i use i use instagram carefully i would say uh, i i try and i think i try and share but it's a tough one i'd have to say if they start to put that thing in as long as it's still within my control i think i'd be okay with it but if it means that it automatic it does something strange then no because i i don't want to like at the moment until i understand this stuff better there's no question of minting nfts out of my work because i just um, yeah i just don't for instance somebody i spoke with said well you can make an nft out of this video and i'm like well what what happens to it then are we talking about a 10 minute nft i'm very confused and they're like no but it could be both and i was like i don't understand what you're saying i don't get it like it can be both it can be a print it can be a 20 minute film and it can be that just seems like uh i don't know a collector's dream and an artist's nightmare i don't know it's strange i don't think i think about anyone except the work when i'm doing it but once the work is done and it's out there then if you don't have people write about it there is no way to share it across you know because then otherwise it's it's limited to whoever's being able to see the work and especially now where i have actually not been able to travel so the work has traveled over the past two years it's been to busan it's been to new york i haven't been so it's important you know to to get people um, and most of the uh, invitations i mean most of them if if it's an institution then the institution will set up you know the press right so if it's a show in a gallery then the gallerist will uh, the gallery already has a pr link up and then they send you know the information to various publications or to newspapers and then those journalists will get in touch with you and i think you know the thing is it's sort of part of the job you know it's part of the job is communicating what you're trying to do but also uh, being the best steward for your own work so that's why i i like to do this but also i am you know we all get burned and then you realize you really have to sort of either be very clear i try and do a lot of these on email and if they're in uh, if we're talking then okay i would love to be able to see something maybe and if that isn't possible then hopefully at least the conversation didn't raise any red flags in terms of you know at least this person is thinking about it i just feel like uh, it, but sometimes even that you just have to sort of let it slide but up to a point i think but i think it is it's part of the job i think you have to you have to be your own best spokesperson for the work I don't really think of it as selling myself as much as speaking for the work because sometimes a very often like I do all my own writing I write for all the work I write for all the shows I write for everything because I know the work best you know when someone is able to write for my work that's great but I don't wait for someone to do that because then you know you have to get the material out there and whether people take it on when they see the work is another matter then I leave that at the door but at least I do the writing think like those boundaries also shift with uh, time and with with place and with age or whatever it is i just think because i to be honest even on social media i am very leery of posting too much information so if you come to the website there will be far more text i don't put too much online because a, i have a public account 
I don't know who's going to be looking and no one, you're not going to find my sketches there. You're not going to find my notes there. You won't find the books I'm reading there. Because to be honest, that's for people who come to the studio, if they want to come to the studio, that's for people who ask, what are you reading? Because I think there is, it's not a, it's not a danger thing. It's just a reality that there will always be people who will not be looking out for the best, right? So you just have to keep those, those lines drawn for yourself. So I, I post a small amount. I post uh, material that I would be sharing anyway in terms of a press release or something like that. But I don't actually post anything that is in the way of uh, work in progress or anything like that. Because it's a, you have to create a safe space for yourself and for the work, you know. There is a point at which too much, um, what's the word? You don't, I don't want um, any inputs at, at a stage. You see what I mean? Like later is okay, but I, I'm not looking for that earlier. I think two things, be patient and be kind with yourself. Very important. Be patient and be kind. It, it does take a while. It takes. It's a long road and it's also, it's a long game. It's a long road. Uh, it's slightly different for different people. So it is very challenging. It happens to all of us. You see peers or younger people seemingly getting more opportunities. All of those things will happen. But I think you have to have faith in your own practice. I think you. it's a combination of sort of having faith and also being real. Huh? So you have to sort of not have an unrealistic expectation of yourself either. But I think kindness is very important and this applies uh, not only with yourself but just with the world that you will be inhabiting. So for instance, I always tell younger artists here also that they must work in an art space. Even if it's a short internship, just work in a gallery, work in a not-for-profit so that you understand the kind of work that goes into making your work possible. You have to know what goes into that. You know, How do you write a proposal? How do you respond to an email politely? How do you frame a budget? So getting job, you know, work experience on the other side is very important. Otherwise, because we, we, I've done that and lots of us have worked at art spaces and you, you remember the artists who were kind, you remember the artists who were not. So I think that is very important. Um, and yeah, I would say these, just, these are the three things and keep at it, you know, just keep, keep working. The other great thing about the art world is that there are so many art worlds. It's like a multiverse of art worlds. There are art worlds within art worlds and there will be a world for everyone, including someone who just paints cats or someone who paints flowers. There are worlds within worlds within worlds. And if you, as long as you go out there, you will find it. Unless you don't want to, which is also fine. You know, like, that's also fine. But you have to keep at it and you have to just maybe... Find those experiences, you know, maybe figure out what it is. The thing is, though, it keeps shifting and you, you will keep finding new ways of, uh, of, of inspiration. I think it's just continuing. You have to keep doing. The doing is a daily thing. It's a daily thing. Like I'm in the studio every day because my studio is at home. I'm very often in the studio on a Saturday and a Sunday as well for a period of time if I have to. So it's a daily practice and it happens slowly. You know, it doesn't mean you're productive every day, but you have to keep at it. And then eventually it'll either come or, as I said, it won't come. And you'll know when that moment has or hasn't arrived. And then you will, you will have to see what, what has to happen. You know what I mean? Thanks for listening to Creators by Moonlight. Email the show at creatorsbymoonlight at gmail.com and follow the show on social at Creators by Moonlight. <laughs>